relationship. I think a lot of people would think that the glue of every relationship, whether it be brother or sister, girlfriend, boyfriend, husband to wife, is compromise. Right? Compromise. Without compromise, where would you be? Dodie's ending my sermon already. <clears throat> when you're really interested in doing this thing and then another person is interested in doing that other thing, the opposite thing, it can be really frustrating, right? But it's so nice to know that, you know, if you share this idea of compromise, it's so nice to know. Okay, if I make this concession now or if I give up this thing, uh, then next time, you can make this concession later. And then eventually, everything will just be even. Or you can say, look, if we both just give up a little of what we want now, kind of like being unsatisfied in the, the short term, then we'll be able to have a good relationship. Compromise. It's what establishes and keeps unity. Or is it? From this morning's passage, we see what God prescribes to his people to maintain unity. We see what God thinks is important, what God thinks gels uh, a relationship or relationships together. And our passage this morning is Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. So if you have your Bibles, turn there, um, and I'll give you some background. Paul the Apostle here is writing to a church in Philippi, and it's around 61 A.D., he is in jail for preaching the gospel, and uh, he doesn't even know it, but he's just a few years away from his execution for the gospel's sake. It's largely an encouraging letter, super encouraging. So you hear some words re repeat again and again, like joy. You hear him rejoicing. That's another one. And he encourages them towards unity through humility all the while conforming to Christ. So if you're taking notes, that's basically the big idea. Here, from our passage today, Paul encourages them and us to live in unity, that's point number one, through humility, that's point number two, and then number three, all the while conforming to Christ. So that's God's prescription for what keeps a relationship and relationships together. I'll go ahead and read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, 
to the glory of the Father. So do you all want to know what your part is in maintaining unity and strengthening the body of Christ? He says, number one, live in unity. Number two, through humility. And then number three, always conforming to Christ. And let's go ahead and begin at Paul's encouragement to, for us to live in unity. That's verses one and two. And this is an instruction to the whole church. It's an imperative. He tells them to do this, the whole entire church. Look there at the end of verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So basically, in summary, he says, be unified. Be of one mind. Same purpose, same intent, same goal. But did you notice what comes before that? He doesn't just simply tell them what they ought to do. What is the heartbeat there of the church's unity? The heart that circulates the blood of unity through the living organism is what? If you see in verse 1, it's the gospel, which obviously is God's love for us. So Dodie's right. In 1 John it says that God displayed, he lavished his love on us by sending us his son to die on the cross for our sins. The gospel here is that living heartbeat of unity. Look there in verse 1. He says, so if there is, and there he's not saying, you know, I'm not sure if there is. I don't know whether or not it exists. He knows it exists. It's more like saying given that there is. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he says, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So that's that if-then. He says, if this exists, then naturally you're going to do this. And what he does there is he, he, he points our minds to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you can imagine, it's like these great panoramic pictures Mikkel's great at taking these panoramic pictures. And I'm thinking one of Dubai where you can see the clouds and all the buildings. Imagine this great, majestic panoramic picture. It's like Paul holds this first one in front of our minds so that we might stare at it and behold it and marvel at it. Any encouragement in Christ. And then he goes to the next one. Any participation, or sorry, any comfort from love. That is love from Christ. Love from God. So he causes us to look at the incarnation, the plan of salvation, any participation in the Spirit. The Spirit in the Old Testament and then the New Testament, it's very clear that the Spirit is what causes us to walk in God's ways. So, wow, we can actually obey. That's the, that's the third panoramic picture. And then the fourth one is any affection and sympathy. Now, those two words are used most frequently of God himself. So that's the final one. Any affection from God? You guys know the affection from God? Any sympathy? He says, given all these things, all these beautiful things that we all can stare at, that come, that is the gospel, different facets of the gospel, he says, complete my joy then by being of the same mind. Be unified. This here is nothing less than gospel unity that comes from Jesus Christ. It's united in the fact not that we are all, most of us here, live in, let's say, Hacienda Heights or the San Gabriel Valley. That's not, that's not unity here, according to what the Philippians, according to what Paul says. It's not unity in race 
It's not unity in preference or in hobby. It's gospel unity. United in the fact that we all have the same problem, but then the same great Savior. We all worship Jesus Christ, Paul says. And that's what we ought to be unified in. Sinners saved by the grace of God. Sinners who've been brought and drawn into a relationship with the creator of the universe. This is gospel unity. So I th a long time ago, probably about you know, 10 months ago, we walked through the gospel, the four sort of hangers that you can hang your mind on when you're thinking about the gospel. The first one is God. So here we're talking about what we ought to be unified in. The first one is God. So God created the whole entire world. He created people to be in relationship with him. Uh, and it was a perfect relationship where God displayed his love. He walked amongst his people. He gave them his law, which they were to, to follow and love God through obedience and living out those commands. But then there's a problem. The next one is people or man. So the first topic, you can think of God as we think about the gospel. And then you move to man. There's a problem with man. We can look around the world, and, and it's obviously not perfect. Some of you all might, on the way over here, you know, gotten in some sort of disagreement with your spouse. Or maybe your kids aren't waking up, so you're trying, you know, kicking them out the bed. Get up! And sort of getting angry at them. There's a problem. The world isn't perfect. Why is that? Because we have rebelled against God, actually. We all have decided to live out underneath God's loving care... And we want to flex our autonomy. I live for myself. I determine what's right and what's wrong. And I'm going to do whatever I want to. And so the Bible calls that a sin. That's man's problem. The punishment for that sin is exactly what Johnny was singing about. Is blood needs to be shed. From the beginning you see that. And that's a weighty punishment. All who have sinned have gone away from God and are worthy of God's punishment. The good thing... The good news is, so that's God, that's man, there's Christ, that's number three. If you're writing down the gospel, God, man, Christ. God sends his son to die on that cross. Blood needs to be shed. The good news is it's not going to be yours. God says it will be my son's. And we're going to look a little bit uh, at that a little bit later. But on the cross, he bears our sins. He takes the punishment that we deserve so that we might be free. And in that, we experience, experience encouragement. We experience love. We see God's affection. We see God's sympathy. There's participation in the Spirit. And then finally, there's response. So there's God, man, Christ, response. Everywhere throughout the Bible, uh, God calls people to repent and believe, to believe in Jesus Christ, trust in Him. In Him alone is salvation of sins for everyone, everyone, no matter the race, no matter the class, no matter where they live, no matter what they've done, no matter what sins they try to hide, they said there's forgiveness and reconciliation in Christ. So that's the unity that they find themselves in, laboring for that intent, same purpose, same goal, all of it to magnify Jesus Christ to the glory of God. Interesting, though, in verses 1 and 2, go ahead and look there again. It's interesting there that in verses 1 and 2, relationship with God must, 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 must affect the relationships that we have with his people. He says, if you have experienced any encouragement from Christ, love from Christ, 
the gospel, that is Christ coming down, then be unified, he says. And interesting word choice. He says, complete my joy. Complete it. This is the Apostle Paul here, right? The guy whom God used to lay the foundation of his church. He said, I delight. He said, I pray with joy for you guys all the time. That was in chapter 1. He labors for them to grow in the knowledge of their faith. There's joy there. But he says, it's what happens, actually, if people aren't living in unity? If we as First Baptist Church are not living in unity? What happens to Paul's joy? It remains incomplete, doesn't it? incomplete finally unfinished so this is god's apostle to lay the foundation of the church he says i take joy in laboring for your faith but not only as individuals but then he wants to see that faith worked out amongst the body if you've experienced anything this love from christ be unified he says uh, just think about a soccer coach or a football coach i played soccer so i'm thinking about soccer coach um, I played like 10 years growing up. Can you imagine, imagine the good coach, right? The good coach not only wants you all individually to develop your talents, right? That's the good coach. He wants you to develop your individual talents. But it would be the foolish, irresponsible coach who just said, okay, I want you to develop your talents, but I don't want you to think about the team. I don't want you as individuals to think about how you play your position so that we all might be of the same purpose and have the same end and have the same goal. That would be a very foolish soccer coach. But it's just like that with Paul. He wants you guys to grow individually in your knowledge of God. So he prays for it. But he wants us to be thinking about how we as a unit, as each individual local congregation, how we can function together, same mind, same purpose, same goal. And this unity is incredibly precious to God. So much so that the Bible says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And there he's not thinking like positively, like I genuinely hate you. There it's just genuinely not loving your brothers, not showing care. He says that he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, or sorry, um, whom he has seen, can't love God whom he has not seen. The guy there who doesn't love his brother doesn't care for the members of his church says there is a liar. So the litmus test of faith in God is loving those for whom Christ died. So if you want to see how big your heart is toward Jesus, look and see how big your heart is towards his people. Not generally his people. I mean the local church. Unity is a big deal. And you know what's so fascinating is I got something right here. This is the covenant of First Baptist Church of Hacienda Heights. They thought it was so important. Unity. This is what they said. This is what, this is what headlines um, the church covenant. D were any of you here when you guys actually used this? I assume this has been here since the, the, the very beginning of First Baptist Church, which is so awesome. So awesome. This is what it says. Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
we do now in the presence of God and this assembly. So presence of God, absolutely. But and this assembly, what do they do? We most solemnly and joyfully enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. And then it just goes on and lists all the promises that we have towards God and all the promises that we can <clears throat> uh, have that we have towards others, whether it be evangelism, taking care of our family members, maintaining family and secret devotion, being holy, walking in holiness before the world, holding out the gospel to others. This, it was so important that they thought they would put it down on paper and have the whole entire church agree together at the founding of First Baptist Church of Hacienda Heights. This is awesome. And uh, Rick and I are hoping to um, review it. There's some old-style language and hopefully bring it back into use. It's a summary of the biblical uh, commands that Jesus wants us all to have. It's a great piece of history there. So, so Paul says live in unity. Here's point number two. It's through humility. Not compromise. It's through humility. And so striving for this unity requires humility. If humility is threatened, obviously unity is threatened. Or sorry, if humility is missing, unity then is threatened. Can you guys imagine living in a community minus humility? What that might be look like, what that might look like. In a community where everyone is doing their own thing for their own gain. Community minus humility. Have you guys ever seen Survivor? The goal is, you know, you throw 12 people in and they're supposed to somehow last till the end or they're supposed to get ahead. And so they're using one another as like pawns simply to get ahead and to survive. And at the end, I think there's some sort of pot of money, of money or something like that. Um... But that is community minus humility. It's actually not community at all, isn't it? Is it? It's more like slave relationships, slave market relationships. You use people so that you can get ahead, thinking about their own. It's so, it, Paul is so, he so strongly says there in verse 3, look there. He says, if you want unity, do nothing, do nothing, absolutely nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So those two things, it destroys unity. Going back to my uh, soccer illustration, it's a Super Bowl. You know, I, I have some sort of sports illustration. Um, I used to play with this, this one kid, and uh, he was a phenomenal goalie. Phenomenal goalie. I mean, then we were like 13, 14 years old. And, um, but we all knew, the whole team knew that this guy was unusually gifted. So he was quick. He reacted well. He read the field well. But man... If the coach wanted us all to run some play and he didn't want to in practice, he would get so angry. So angry that he'd actually yell at the coach. This is a 13-year-old kid. And then we go, we'd go on, we went to this one tournament. Uh, we were actually quite good back then. Um, we, went to, we went to this tournament and the coach took him off the field or told him to get off the field because he kept on, he got carded. And he was so angry, he started cursing at the referee, started cursing at the coach. He just refused to get off the field. And he's 13 years old. And it was so clear that while he said he was for the team, he really was out for himself. He wanted to develop his own gifting. 
his own abilities, but not to the benefit of the team. He was getting us all in trouble. He was making us all look bad. Who really cared if we won the game when this guy is just going crazy? He wanted to do all those things for his own self. Selfish ambition. Now, can you imagine community without humility, a team without humility, where everyone is out doing their own thing? So you got, sorry if you guys never played soccer, you got the forwards, you got the, the, you got the halfbacks, and then you got the defenders. Imagine if all of those people didn't care about the position that they were to play. What kind of team unity is that? You actually have chaos. Everyone wanting to look good. Reminds me of the LA Lakers, actually. <laughs> Anyways. Um, Paul says don't be like that. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit because it destroys humility. But what maintains unity? Look there in verse 3. But, so don't do this, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. So there he says more significant. Now that doesn't, that doesn't mean that... Uh, Let's say Mickle. I ought to think that Mickle is of worth more is worth more value than me as an individual. That's not what he's saying at all. Not at all. He's just saying, as you look towards others, um, just think of them as surpassing. Uh, you know, your love and affection go towards them because you want to see them. And then later on, he explains there in verse four, and their interests met. Not not worth. As more of the idea of important as in what they desire. You know, you love them so much you want to see them fed. I mean, parents and children understand this, right? You might give some of the best portions, if you're, if you're, gen if you're generous and humble, some of the best portions of your food to a hungry child. And I'm pretty sure that you all would do that. That's what he means there. He says that our unity hangs on us esteeming others. As we hold others in high esteem, more significant than ourselves. And then he expands in verse 4, let each of you look not only to your own interests. So there he's not saying don't look to your own interests. Or he's, he's, he's not saying don't care about yourselves. It's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, look there, look not only to your own interests, but also the interest of others. So he wants us to take care of ourselves. He just also wants to take care of others. That's the point there. Generally speaking, you know, the American church, uh, we're not too good at this. We live in a very consumeristic culture, and sometimes the church is guilty of it. So the churches, you know, they may pass out uh, surveys to figure out, you know, when do you guys all want to meet and gather? You know, is 9 a.m. too early? Maybe you enjoy and might feel better served to meet at 11.15, so therefore you can sleep in a little bit and arrive on church at late. And maybe you want larger parking, and you might not have to park on the street. Maybe that would be helpful. Maybe you want uh, French vanilla coffee. Maybe you want regular coffee, etc. You know, how long do you like the sermons? 15 minutes or one hour? How are our restrooms? Are our restrooms serving you or are not they? How many? Uh, anyway, I can go on. Um, Children's restroom is broken. Oh, that needs to be fixed. <laughs> that's not consumer. That's just serving others. But we should go ahead and do that. Um, it's a bit like 
you can tell that we're not too good at this, and you can tell we are a consumeristic culture because many people, they think about church like a cruise ship. They evaluate the church like a cruise ship. They think, hmm, okay, you know, in what direction is this ship going? Are my needs going to be met? You know, how many buffets are available so that I can just sit there and relax and drink my drink on, you know, the deck of the pool? And you know what? If it's nice, maybe I'm going to sail with them once again after this is done. Um, you can imagine that. Church as a cruise ship. But is this what the church is in the New Testament? Is it just something that we're here to lounge upon, lounge in and everyone exists to serve you? The Bible says that the church is more like a battleship engaged in battle against sin and the devil. So there ain't no sunbathing on this battleship engaged in battle. Instead, every man is to be at his station. One in mind, one in purpose, one in mission. Each and every individual is a provider, not a consumer. So there are many providers here at this church, there's no doubt. Um, but one that comes to mind, and I arrive here, um, and I always see her here, it's Marissa. Marissa. I think you are a great provider. So if anybody of you here drinks coffee, that coffee came through the hands of Marissa. Have you thanked her for providing for you? Also, we need to supply that cabinet. Everybody can coffee. She makes it. Yeah, that's good. Then we all can be providing. Uh, but she comes in here at 8 a.m., cleans up a bit, makes us all coffee, and then she drives to pick up others so that they might have the benefit of being present at church as well. I know people who look at the prospect of waking up 15 minutes earlier than they might normally do to give someone a ride. And the automatic impulse is to resist because of their sleep, because they want breakfast, or because of who knows whatever it is. I think Marissa is a great example of what it looks like to be interested in our interests. So I pray that we all would be uh, better providers, considering others more significant than ourselves and looking out for the needs of others, not only ourselves, but others. So you all can think about, uh, you know, where are, where do you expect people to serve you? If the coffee were not there, would you come in and say automatically like, where's the coffee? Or if, let's say, Johnny wasn't here, Anna wasn't here, and Mikkel weren't here, and, and we all had to sing just with our voices or go back to the, the wonderful music box that I'm sure we all know and love so well, um, would we say, ah, oh, you know, they're not here, but with an expectation that they ought to be here so that we could be served? If there is any hint of that expectation, let me encourage you guys to think about thanking those people encouraging those people who are here to provide for you but we hope also that we all would be providing for one another great opportunities also is to serve in children's ministry but the most important the most important at least when we're not gathering is i would encourage you to the more personal work of inviting people to your home and inviting people into your life so that you can know actually their genuine needs like, if you look to your, to your neighbor, what genuine needs do they have? And how can you meet that? It could be taking them out to go grocery shopping and actually having a conversation with that person. 
It could just be actually having a conversation with that person. Because maybe no one's really ever talked to them and taken interest in their lives. It could be giving them a ride. Have you guys figured out who has cars and who doesn't have cars? It is a privilege to have cars. So who needs rides and how can we help them? The list can go on and on. I encourage you guys to go ahead and think about how we can cultivate the servant attitude and learn to be providers for others. So Paul has encouraged us to live in unity through humility. And this is the last point. Always conforming to Christ our Savior. This is verses 5 to 11. These verses are beautiful verses. Some of the most uh, popular um, and important verses that speak about Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross uh, as he lived and died for us. And uh, hopefully we can return back to this passage at some point in time and focus and spend more time on it. This is getting, you know, just a handful of minutes here. So in summary, verses 5 to 11 returns to what he mentioned earlier. If there is any of these things from the gospel, from heaven to earth, heaven to us, it is the gospel. He talks about how God humbled himself how God the Son left all the glory he had in heaven and became man. And what is held out for us in view to look and to stare at once again is the grandest panoramic picture of redemption. Look there in verse, verse 5. I'll read there. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at, that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, uh, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Christ here is our example. He is the goal of our sanctification. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then this section has two parts, Christ's humiliation and then Christ's exaltation. His humiliation is coming down and then his exaltation is going up. He says there, though he was, though he was in the form or the nature of God, that's how it starts it off there. Have this mind among yourselves, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. There he's talking about how Christ, the Son was God before his incarnation, but he already was God. And people who already are God, which there is only God the Father, God the Son, the Spirit, they're not grasping after what they need because they have everything they want. If you are God, why ought you to grasp after, use it to your own advantage, as if you don't have it, as if you might lose it? Though he was in the form or the nature, God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Because he deserved everything, right? But he made himself nothing. How did he do that? By taking the form of a servant. How did he do that? By being born in the likeness of men. So there it's like, it's like Paul is taking us down the steps of humiliation. Do you see just what Christ has given up with every single step? He was God, but his mentality, he didn't grasp after it, but he made himself nothing 
The next step down, he was taking the form of a servant. He was being born in the likeness of men. Likeness, he had flesh there. He's, he, he's the same as us, except that he had no sin. And then being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So not only did he take human form, not only did he uh, leave the glory that he had, but he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And it wasn't natural death. It wasn't like Christ comes down, takes on flesh to merely just sort of keel over and die out of natural causes. It's, it, what does it say next? It says, even, even. So that's sort of like the climax of his humility. Even death on a cross. It's hard for us to imagine what this, what exactly this humiliation looked like. All the steps. You know, we wear crosses on our necks. We hang them from our rear view mirrors. We don't even mean much nowadays. It doesn't mean much even to, to even have it. But back then in that culture, they would whisper the word cross. Because that's how heinous... Uh, the punishment was for people who were worthy of that crime according to that culture. And so here Jesus Christ dies the death that we mentioned earlier of a criminal. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That right there is the climax of his humiliation as he bore our sin on the cross and the wrath that we deserve so that we might be free. But did you see that there? There are like the steps of humiliation, but then what happens next? It's like this immediate thing that God does. Look there in verse 9. Therefore, given all those steps of humility that Christ uh, stepped down, therefore, God has highly exalted him. And that therefore isn't, isn't like because Jesus did these things, therefore he's worthy of this. It has more of the emphasis that says, given that he already was, and yet he did these things, wow, God so much more does this great thing. He exalts him, highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Well, the question is, okay, well, what name is this? So that at the name, the whole world would worship this Jesus Christ who took on flesh to die for sinners. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That is universal recognition of his lordship, whether in heaven or whether in hell. Those who recognize his lordship because they experience punishment for their own sin, or those who recognize his lordship because they've been saved by this great king. Universal worship, verse 11, and then it says, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, here's the name, is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The Lord there is nothing less than Old Testament Yahweh, the one who creates all things, the one who sustains all things, the one who delivers, the one who forgives. Jesus Christ is Lord, just as he was in the beginning, and so he is in his exaltation after he dies on the cross. And all of this, it says, is to the glory of the Father. This is our servant king. He takes on the form of a servant, and there you see that all humans really are born not to serve ourselves, but to serve God. This is exactly what Jesus Christ does, the God-man. This here is absolute humility. This is the example. Live in, live in unity through humility, 
by following Jesus Christ as our example, conforming to him. So he, what he starts off with, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is the gospel, realities that you know, be unified. And then he says, and look to Jesus Christ who did this. And I want you to do that as well to others. So the question is, do you all follow and pursue this humility as you labor for unity? Jesus Christ gave himself completely for you so that we might give ourselves completely to others. So what holds the relationships together? It's not compromise where two people give up some of what they want so that uh, we're just sort of satisfactorily getting along. That's pathetic. That's compromise. But here, and by, when I say pathetic, I mean pathetic in comparison to what Paul has just held out to. Here Paul says, no, that's not, that isn't what, that's not what's going to keep us together. He says what's going to keep us together is completely giving ourselves, even to death, for one another. So can you imagine now the team where every single individual, every player is using their abilities given by God, their talents, their strengths, and each in their individual position, but wanting the benefit of everyone else. It means that they're going to play their position as best as they can so that we might achieve that goal. And if everyone is doing that, there's nothing to fear, right? You, some of us might look at this, this command, um, you know, think others more highly of themselves and think, oh, you know, that's impossible. That's never going to happen. And if that happens anyways, I'm going to get, I'm going to get run over. But if everyone's pursuing Christ equally, equally so in that we want everyone equally to receive our love and we're giving ourselves away and laboring for unity, everyone guarding and helping each other love Christ more play their position as best they can. There's nothing to lose there. The reality is we live in a sinful world, and it's a reality that if you know me long enough, I will sin against you. That you can be sure of. And if I know you long enough, you're going to sin against me as well. But in Christ, who gave himself for us, who forgave me of my sin and you of your sin, that's okay. I know you're going to sin against me, and so when you do, Forgiveness can be granted, and we say, great, well, let's continue moving forward. Same mind, same purpose, same goal. All pursuing and being conformed to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. If you have not followed Jesus, the question is, well, how exactly are you going to have this humility and pursue unity? That kind of means that you're going to be stuck living for yourself, and I'm sure you know what that might be like, where people are out to get. And you, maybe you have been used and loved in that way, loved and then discarded. Jesus Christ here holds out something so entirely different, this Lord, this King. If you would only repent of your sins and trust in him. And you see this unity that he is even drawing between the Father and us right here, all through his own blood. Live in unity through humility all the, t all the while conforming to the image of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we confess that if it were up to us, there would be no unity. Even now, I'm sure we can think of all the number of relationships that we wish we would have done something different. Or we certainly wish other people would have done something different. Lord, we know how finite we are. We can't affect this unity that you alone can bring. 
So Lord, we pray that by the Spirit's power and with Christ our Savior, you would help us, help us give ourselves away for our brothers and sisters here even in First Baptist Church of Hacienda Heights. Lord, cause us to be unified and may we pray and labor for this, for this unity, a unity that holds out the gospel of Jesus Christ. May you, by your Spirit, help us live in one mind, in one accord, loving one another, and all for the glory of Jesus Christ. And Lord, when we sin against each other, Lord, may we lavish forgiveness upon us, knowing that we have been forgiven of our sins. And may we continue to help one another, linking arms and moving forward towards um, glorifying you in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Please stand with us as we sing.